Tonight we'll be, we'll be reading from Luke 9, verses 28 through 36. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with them Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. All right, family. Last week, we had a very heavy and challenging text. And I wasn't trying to make it more challenging than it is. I was merely trying to illuminate what is there and what so often our hearts can be closed towards. Um, the text last week, if you were here, if you haven't, please listen because it is very important to connect with today's passage. But Jesus says, if anybody would come after me, if you want to follow me, you got to take up your cross daily, denying yourself and follow me. And what I tried to do is figure out why is such a well-known passage so widely discarded. And, but that brings us today to this text. This text is not something you want to read on its own without last week, nor can you read last week without this week. And I hope to show that and make that clear how we need them together. In original context there, it was an absolute slap to the face of disciples. And if we understand what Jesus was actually saying, it should be a slap to our face as well. But after the sting wears off on our faces, there is glory. There is good news. See, the call to follow Christ and to be a Christian is a daily life of sacrifice, of death-like lifestyle. And it's great loss. I cannot overemphasize that the text makes it clear that the, the Christian life is going to be a regular, excruciating reality. And yet, if you stop there, you miss Christianity because after death comes resurrection. And, on the, and what follows immense sacrifice is immense joy, immense gain, immense life. And I love preaching through the Bible. I love this because this passage we're going over today, many of you guys know, the transfiguration, is one, and I've said this before, is I've read enough of the Bible to where I'm getting to the point where when I look at a text, I can be like, yeah, 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 yeah I, I know that, and I kind of skim. At least that's my temptation. 
And what I love about having the privilege of preaching the Bible over and over again is I have to look at a text that I thought I knew and realize that I only was scratching the surface. And so excited for this passage because it's so much better than I had any um, idea. And at last week, I mentioned that if you really embrace this lifestyle of daily sacrifice for Jesus, but, and this is a big but, but, kids always laugh at that one. When I was a youth pastor, I would say, there's a lot of big buts in the world, and this is the biggest. But, what was I saying? (laughs) But if you embrace this, life of sacrifice, but if you do not also have a vibrant, regular, flourishing, joyful relationship, communion with God, then you're ultimately going to burn out. Or you'll find a way in your own strength to kind of live the Christian life and then judge real hard everyone else who's not on your standard or on your level, or you're going to secretly get bitter at God. My life is so hard and I did this all for you. And what I said is that you have to maintain this daily communion. If you don't, you're going to lose it. You're going to to die spiritually. And what we're going to see this week is that the key to sustain a life of sacrifice is beholding his glory daily. A vision of him will sustain you in the hardest, darkest moments. And we need this. This week reveals more of the identity of Jesus. Remember, as we're going through the book of Luke, Constantly, the question should be going through your mind. Who is this Jesus? And do I have certainty about who he is and what he says about himself? We're going to see is that today, the vision we see of Jesus is ultimately going to give us great hope. And this is the picture we see. Following Jesus is a life of sacrifice, but following sacrifice comes glory. I'm using the word following different. Following Jesus is a life of sacrifice, but following sacrifice is glory. Glory follows follows sacrifice. That's the title of the message if you're taking notes, but that's also the main point. Glory follows sacrifice, and there's going to be lots of application to our life. Now, let's look at a hinge verse, verse 27. Again, if you're not, if you lost us, we're in Luke chapter 9, verse 27, This is a hinge verse that takes us to our passage. I didn't cover it last week because we're going to cover it this week. But Jesus says this, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So he's literally talking about the people who he's talking to. Remember, it's the disciples is his immediate context. And then subsequently, it will be part of the context, us Christians now. But he's speaking to them and saying, there's some of you who will not die until you see the kingdom of God. And I remember as a 15-year-old reading this for the first time, I was clearly confused. So I asked my parents, what in the world does this passage mean? And I don't know what they said, but I remember leaving thoroughly and more confused. But what I wish they taught me and what they weren't taught at that time, I love you, mom and dad. They watch most of my sermons. Is that you should never read a verse. You should never read a verse. I've said this before, and it sounds offensive when you first say it, but track with me a little bit. Never read a verse. Read around the verse. Read before, read after, read more. Often, if you have a question about something in the Bible, always just open your Bible and keep reading around. 
And if you read right after, we see that there's a few people who are going to see something quite amazing. And I think verse 27 is fulfilled in our passage today. So let's look at verse 28. Now, about eight days later, and I call this section a glimpse of reality. Now, about eight days later, days after these sayings, he took with him, Jesus that is, Peter and John and James, and went up to the mountain to pray. So Jesus takes three apostles, which would fit into something, some standing here, that phrase that we saw earlier, some standing here. He takes up these three, and what do they do on the mountain? They pray. Now, if you have your Bible open, quickly flip back to verse 18, 918. Just want to make a side point about prayer. Look at verse 18. Now, it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And then he went into the whole question. Notice that he was praying and his disciples were with him. And then again, now in verse 28, as he goes up to the mountain, he's praying with his disciples. I just found that unusually striking as I read that again this week, is how much Jesus prays with his disciples. It's not like a little, hey, say your prayers, disciples, and then let's talk about really what matters. It's, it's, it's like the main event. It's a big deal. And I think that should really shape when we think about our discipleship and our ministries. That prayer should not be a side point or merely a way to intro and end our services. But it should be a main point. And Jesus regularly prays with his disciples, and I hope that shapes more and more our congregation. That we're very, very comfortable and excited to talk to the one we love the most. And I saw this tweet the other day, someone quoting Mark Dever, and he said, Pray so much in your church so that all those who, who are acting... <laughs> so." so that those who are faking like they know him will get so tired of faking it. There's a lot of comments on that. Let me keep going. I should have, shouldn't have said that. Verse 18. Okay, sorry, verse 29. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. Notice that his appearance was altered. Not that he became something that he is not. It's, it's merely, it's not that all of a sudden he became a new person. It was an altering of what you could see. See, what we're going to see coming out of Jesus is what is always there. We're just blind to that reality. See, this root word for dazzling, don't think sparkling. Think lightning. The root for this word dazzling in Greek is the same word that you're going to use for lightning. So Jesus is otherworldly right now. He is clothed in lightning. This is amazing. This is not like he got some good tied bleach. And you're like, wow, that's a white shirt you got on, Jesus. No, we're talking clothed with lightning, and it's brilliant, and it's splendid, and it's overwhelming that I can imagine them just squinting and like freaking out what's going on. That's the imagery you should have in your mind as you think about Jesus being transfigured. Now, As I talk about light coming off of somebody, what does that remind you of, those who have read your Bibles before? Who does that sound like? Moses. Now, we're going to go back to Moses several times today, but let me direct you to verse Exodus chapter 34, verse 29. It's going to be on the screen, but if you want to open up your Bible, I recommend it. Remember, if you're not looking at your Bible when I'm preaching, you're doing something wrong. Exodus 34, 29. 
When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. So in Exodus, we have this beautiful picture that Moses is having this face-to-face kind of communion with the living God. It's, it's uncertain how that was happening exactly, but in some way he was going to the tabernacle, the, meet, the tent of meeting, and he was having this intimate encounter with God. And in, in doing so, as he was beholding the, the God of the universe, the light, the glory of the Father, the glory of God was actually going upon him and then now reflecting off of him. So he was kind of like a moon, right? Does the moon have light on its own? No, the moon is just a giant rock. But the moon, you can see the brilliant light of the moon at night shining because it's reflecting the light of the sun. It has no light of its own. It's derivative light, a light that comes from a greater source that actually produces light. And what is amazing, if you look at our text, is that the glory and the light that's shining off of Jesus is coming from Jesus. It is not a light that he just all of a sudden got from another source. It's actually emanating from him. He's the very source of the light. What Jesus is doing here is giving his disciples and us now on this side of our Bibles a glimpse of what it will be like every day when he makes all things right. Do you look at Revelation 21, 22? Revelation 21, 22 to 23. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives, it, gives its light. And its lamp is the Lamb. Who's the Lamb? Jesus is the Lamb. There's no need for a sun or a moon because Jesus is literally shining and producing enough light for the whole new created world. That is going to be the reality forever with Jesus. So after this suffering that Jesus will experience on the cross, after he returns, all you will see is this glory coming from him. Now, let me explain glory because glory is one of those Christianese words that if you know here enough over time at church, you kind of get the gist of it. But if I were to ask you right now on the spot, stand up here, what is glory? I think a lot of you would be like doing this or you would say some words out there. But let me just give you a, a general definition that should be on the screen. Maybe it's on the screen. The glory of God is the splendor and brilliant beauty that shines through all of the divine attributes, but essentially evident in the crucified and risen Christ. God's glory is the manifestation of the perfection of all his attributes. The doctrine of the glory of God emphasizes his greatness and transcendence, his splendor and holiness. Now, I use a lot more Christianese there, so if you didn't follow that, I do not blame you. But what I can just say is that God has lots of attributes, and the sum of the attributes, the greatness of all those attributes together is, is, is one way you can say his glory. When I think of glory, I think of weightiness, heaviness. 
if you think of scales, God has more weight, more glory than anything else in the world. You take the entire world and all the goods, every single thing, all the talent, all the money, all the riches, everything, and put it on one side of a scale and you put the glory of God and it wouldn't even budge. It's as if you put a feather on a one side and a bowling ball on the other, it wouldn't even register as if something touched the scale. The weightiness, the greatness, the worthiness of God. And it often throughout the Bible is represent in light, radiant light, but not just like a light of like, oh, that's a little light of mine. It's a, it's a brilliant shining light that is so overwhelming that sometimes, mo- actually not sometimes, almost every single time, I'm saying almost every single time because I didn't skim through all of it this week, you see people on their faces because it is so glorious, so great. So for us to grasp last week's Jesus, the suffering Messiah, you have to grasp this glorious Messiah. Listen to this powerful quote by the scholar David Garland. The one who is transfigured on the mountain is the one who is disfigured by anguish, pain, and death on the cross. The two cannot be separated. So Jesus' sacrifice is the darkest of dark days, and yet what follows and will ultimately be the reality forever will be this glory. And the problem for most of us is that we are going to tend to emphasize one Jesus over the other. And it can be based off of your cultural background, based off of your personality bent. It could be probably a big part of it is how much you've been shaped um, and how much your preachers you have been around emphasize. So if you grow up with pastors that only emphasize the cross, you can subtly forget that Jesus was resurrected. And some groups focus so much on the victory and the resurrection of Jesus that it's almost as if there's no such thing as sin and anything he needed to die for. You need both to be simultaneously true and in the forefront of our minds, which is hard and very uncomfortable. It's very easy to just pick one or the other. But if you just pick suffering, you may live your whole life marked with suffering and sadness and mourning and grief for the brokenness of sin in the world, and yet you live as if there's no resurrection. On the other hand, I've met a number of Christians who focus so much on the resurrection that all it is is a party day and night. It's almost as if sin has slipped out of their vocabulary and eat, drink, and be merry because Jesus is victorious. Both of those are ditches that we must reject. Both are simultaneously true. You need to have a good party with friends and celebrate with good drink and food and stories and fun and yet know that at the same time the world is still fallen and broken and people are dying every moment. And yet, you need to be able to also fast and mourn for Jesus to return and all things be right, knowing full well that all things will be right. Feasting and fasting are two rhythms of the Christian life that are very challenging challenging to live maturely. And all of us here need to know what we're going to gravitate towards because one of them is going to be more comfortable than the other for us. And so for me, I'm learning how to feast better over the last 10 years. The first seven years of my faith, it's only about fasting. And I was not fun to be around. <laughs> People were like, oh, step, Sam's coming. Get around, <laughs> run away. Literally, that's a true story. People would told me that 
that they would, leave, they would run away from me. And yet now I'm in the, the complicated place of how do I harmonize to those two realities, that Jesus has already won and yet the world is still broken. Let's keep going. Just like last week, knowing how to live in between these realities, though, you need healthy biblical community in your life to help apply these realities. It is not enough for you to simply self-diagnose yourself and try to come up with your plan on how to do it. You need healthy community to walk with you and to help balance you out on any of the, 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 um, the leanings you may have that would be unhelpful. Now let's keep going to the passage. Verse 30, we're going to talk about these two witnesses, verse 30 and 31. And behold, two men were talking with him. Again, we're in Luke chapter 9, verse 30. Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his, speaking of Jesus, departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Notice two men or two people. Throughout the Bible, what do you need two or three to do? Witnesses. That's right. Throughout the Bible, you need two or three witnesses to establish any, every matter. And so you have two or three witnesses, witnesses here establishing the legitimacy of Jesus' identity and his ministry. But not just two or three anybody's. You can always find two or three witnesses if you pay them enough. But we're talking about Moses and Elijah. My son just looked at me. Not you, Elijah, the other Elijah. Why these two guys? Now, the text doesn't say, so you got to speculate. But remember the uniqueness of the death of these two men. How did Moses die? Well, Moses died of old age. And then who buried him? Do you guys remember this? God did. Yay! That's my boy. God buried Moses. Never hear about that again in scripture. And then later on in Jude, we see that like Satan, Michael are like fighting for his body. Very weird, very strange. Now, the second person, Elijah, did he die? No, he had a fiery chariot take him up like in a whirlwind up to heaven. So you can imagine these guys have uh, some very interesting stories to tell. And so these two guys come down and they are uh, witnessing and verifying the legitimacy of Jesus together. Both come from um, different backgrounds. Both died in unusual ways and both represent different eras. Moses representing the Old Testament law and also the first type of Messiah bringing God's people out of, of, of bondage. And then also Elijah representing the prophets. And what does Malachi say about Elijah? There's going to be a forerunner who's going to speak and be a forerunner heralding the coming of the king. So you got both Elijah and Moses speaking on behalf and dialoguing with Jesus. Can you imagine being there? Can you imagine sleeping through that? Because what we see is that two people did sleep through that. Notice, though, that they're also appearing in glory, which when I think about why are they appearing in glory, where were they most likely just at? They were probably before the Father. And so they are reflecting the, the sun, the, the rays of the Father in, as their glory, as they're glorified in this text. Now, what were Elijah and Moses talking to Jesus about? They weren't just shooting the breeze or talking about heaven's good food or whatever it is. They're talking about Jesus's, what's the word here? Do you see it in your Bible? Departure. Do you know what that word is in Greek? Exodus. They're talking to Jesus about his exodus. 
This is ironic, right? Because who is Jesus talking to? Moses. Interesting. So Jesus is talking about the exodus he is about to accomplish, accomplish with the very guy who led the first exodus out of Egypt. Now, while Moses led the people of Israel out of physical slavery, Jesus is going to have a different kind of exodus, delivering his people out of spiritual slavery from sin and Satan through his death and resurrection. Furthermore, Moses brought his people physically into a promised land, but the problem is their hearts were still in Egypt. Do you guys remember that? Oh, if we could just be in Egypt, it's how good we had it back then. God physically brought them into the promised land, but their hearts were still in Egypt. What Jesus will do is ultimately he will usher the way for his people to go into the ultimate promised land where there's no borders, when the glory of God covers the world as water covers the sea, as Habakkuk teaches us, that it's going to be this beautiful new heavens, new earth, and God will bring his people there, and not just his physical, our physical bodies, we'll have completely new perfected hearts. Amen? Notice the, also this word accomplished, that he's going to accomplish I think that's significant, or the other word you could use, and if you have a different translation, is fulfilled. The reason that's important is because Jesus is not pivoting. He's not scrambling and coming up with a new plan. This has always been the plan with the Father that he would die for the sins of the world. This is very, very important because some people out there teach that, that God does not know what he's doing exactly, and he is basically really smart in making pivots based off of what man does without violating anything. And that would be pushed back, at least in part, by this passage. Now, let's look at the response of the disciples here. Peter speaking for the disciples, the two others here. Verse 32. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. This is a a little foreshadow of things to come, right? Disciples sleeping while Jesus is praying and important things are happening. This actually gives me great hope because sometimes, can I be honest, as one of the pastors, I'm sleepy during prayer. Can I get an amen? Amen or oh me. Yes, that's, that's true. We can sometimes feel sleepy in prayer, and these guys have been on a blitz of ministry. I can imagine how tired they are, and perhaps Jesus just prayed really, really long. Look at verse 33. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us take three tents, one for you and one for Moses, one for Elijah. And I love how the text says this. Can you read this with me? Not knowing what he said. Oh, I love it. Peter gives me hope too. Peter falling asleep while Jesus is praying. I mean, it's Jesus praying. It's not like, you know, we've all been around people who pray and you're like, gosh, can you end your prayer, please? You know, but it's Jesus praying. And then here, Peter speaks before he thinks and he's kind of one of those like, ah, he does that all the time. And that's hopeful for me because that's something that I am still being delivered from. But what is Peter trying to do? I think he's trying to come up with a plan to keep all of them. They're about to leave. So he's like, wait, 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 wait. At this time was the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, Feast of Tabernacles is also called the Feast of Booths. And what they would do is, is once a year, they would actually camp. They would camp in the wilderness, 
commemorating their years in the wilderness as the people of Israel, and they would be longing for the restoration of all things. And so camping is biblical. So those who love camping, hey, camping's biblical. So this is going on at this time. And so you can imagine Peter being like, oh, tents, tents. You guys, hey, before you leave, here, why don't I create tents for all of you three? It's really good that we're here. Why don't you stay? Or perhaps he wanted to create these tents to be memorials for them, or he was trying to create base camp. Because he sees Moses and Elijah here, and he's like, oh, yeah, it's starting. It's starting. We've been waiting, and you've been talking about some weird things like suffering. But, man, Moses and Elijah here, okay, we're, gonna, we're about to go crazy. We're about to take over the world. Perhaps he's thinking there's a base camp now that they're setting. But I am speculating a little, but everything I'm saying has some merit based on other passages. But I think one of the biggest mistakes Peter is ma- making right here is that with his statement, he is implying that Jesus is equal with Elijah and with Moses. Do you see that? With this statement, he's implying that, oh, oh, let's just get one for you, one for you, one for you. And what he does not realize is that Jesus is not like them, but a little better, but he's on a completely different level. He's, cre- he's not created. He's not like stronger than them by 10 times. He's on a completely new level playing field because he is the creator. He was with the father from the beginning always, and there was never a beginning for him. But Peter's not all wrong. He's just really bad with his timing because one day there will be a day when Jesus makes his habitation on the earth and all the saints come with him. His just timing is just off by, you know, thousands and thousands of years. But he, 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 he understands what's com- coming. He just doesn't know the step before that comes. He still doesn't get what Jesus said that it is necessary that he suffers. Now, let's see the father come in to the picture and correct the wrong understanding of Peter. Verse 34, the affirmation of the father. As he was saying these things, Peter probably said a lot of things. A cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Okay, we're doing a lot of Old Testament connections. Do you remember cloud in the Old Testament? Does it sound familiar, cloud? You remember Exodus, there was a glory cloud? Look at verse thir- chapter 13, Exodus 13, verse 21. And the Lord went before them in a day, by day in a pillar of cloud, led them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they may travel day by day and by night. And so whenever this glory cloud left and moved, they would all pitch up their tents and follow. So the glory of God would would lead them and guide them. This is the same glory cloud that eventually came into the, uh, the tabernacle and then eventually came into Solomon's temple. And then eventually in Ezekiel chapter 8 through 10, we see that after generations of Israel whoring themselves to other nations, the Spirit of God leaves the temple in like a slow motion way, hovers over the east side, and then finally leaves towards the Mount of Olives, never to be seen again. This is the term in the Bible called Ichabod. There's no glory. And so even the next temple that was built had no glory in it. And so this glory cloud has not been seen in over 600 years. And now the glory cloud is showing up again. 
notice in the text that the cloud came. Jesus was already doing what? He was already shining. He was already brilliant. He was already emanating the glory. It wasn't like the cloud came and all of a sudden he's like, "Woo! give me some of that shining. I'm the moon. He was self-emanating. Just want to remind that again. He is self-brilliant, self-sourcing of his glory. It's not derivative. It's so sourced in him. And when this cloud comes, don't, don't imagine a puffy, cumulus, nimbus kind of cloud that's all cute and sweet. We're talking a glorious cloud that is fierce and frightening. And you see the disciples are so scared. And in another, uh, one of the gospels makes a little clear. Part of, of, of um, Peter's diarrhea of the mouth is the fact that he's scared out of his wits. And so instead of being silent, he just talks when he's scared. This glory cloud is coming and he's scared and he's starting to talk and say stupid things. Verse 35, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. The father is making clear to Peter and all the other disciples that he is not like the other prophets or just a better prophet as Islam would teach or one of the prophets. He is the son. He's in an utterly different, unique class. This is my son. What does this remind you of earlier on in Luke? This is my son. Luke 3.22 on the screen, just for, for time. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The father affirms him. So it doesn't matter what all the crowds are about to say about him. This is significant. And what does the father say about the son? Not just that he's his beloved, but he says, listen to him. Which is very important because throughout this whole gospel of Luke is, who is this man? Who is this Jesus? And now we know clearly he's the God man. No one else is like him. And you can't just revere him or be politically correct about him or have a tattoo about him. You must listen to him. And Pastor Daniel even preached on this. One of the distinguishing marks of a true disciple of Jesus is those who listen to his words and do what he says. Jesus will not, you cannot read Luke and walk away with an understanding of just a Jesus that you just pay homage to. You must listen to him or reject him. There is no in-between. I assume that God would say this about his son. I mean, it's Jesus, right? But does God say something similar about us, his people? Let me take you to the, one of the most scandalous passages in the Bible. Would you, if you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 17. I'm going to take a quick pit stop here. John chapter 17, verse 23. It's one of my most favorite passages in the Bible, and I, I would encourage you to um, underline, highlight it, diagram it, phrase it, tattoo it, write it on your head, put it on your mirror, because it's so scandalous, you need to look at it over and over again to believe it, because it just doesn't make sense. It's just preposterous. If you actually read it, you're like, this, this, this was, must have been interpolation, which is a fancy textual way to say someone added it on. This must be interpolation. Because nobody would say this. Which also reminds you how legit the Bible is because it has statements like this that no man would ever dream and comprehend of writing and faking. 
Look at verse 23. Jesus is praying. He's saying this. I, Jesus, in them, the disciples and those who follow, and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Let me say that one more time. You loved them even as you loved me. You loved them even as you loved the Son. This is the craziest passage. This is one of the craziest passages in the Bible that Jesus would say that the same kind of love the Father has for him, he has for his people. That is just, oh, can we just move on? Because if you struggle with the love of God, this is a passage you just kind of want to sweep under the rug because it's too fantastic, too amazing, too unbelievable that, that your heart either needs to crumble under it and receive it or you have to harden and say, no, that can't be true, not for me. Maybe for that person. Maybe, maybe for her, maybe for him, not for me. You got to receive this. The same kind of love the Father has for the Son, He has for you and for me because of Christ. Which brings us back to last week's passage, verse 26 in Luke chapter 9, if you want to flip there quickly. We're going to stay in Luke. Well, we're going to go one more place, but we'll be in Luke for a little bit. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory, in the glory of the Father and of the angels, holy angels. Remember, I said last week, choose your shame wisely. You either choose to be shamed by other people right now in the world for Christ, or one day you will be shamed by Christ for rejecting him today. But how can we do such a thing? Can we just be real? Because I kind of like being approved by people. Do you? You know, I, I don't like get my kicks for being hated on by others. I kind of like people to like me. Well, the only way to live this kind of shameless, bold life for Christ is that you know that the Father accepts you and approves you so much and his voice is so loud in your heart and ears that the voices of anyone else, even your father or mother or your best friends or even your spouse, pale in comparison to his voice. That's the only way you can actually obey verse 26 to live this shameless life or shame-free life, you have to know the Father's acceptance and love for you. Christian, because of what Christ has accomplished for us, the Father approves us like he approves the Son. And I know the temptation is to look at our life and say, Sam, you don't know what I did last night. You don't know what I did last week. You don't know what I did in my life. And yet, it's not your life that's being counted. It's Christ's life. And that is the scandal of the gospel. It sounds too good to be true, but yet it is true. It's, it's truer than me standing here in the flesh. It's truer than your spouse being alive. It's truer than the, what you're sitting on. It's the most true reality that Jesus dies for sinners. And that's, that's the greatest news. This gives you the power to stand, even though those that you love most will shame you, is if you know the Father loves you more than their shame they heap on you. Now let's look at the aftermath of all this. Verse 36, and when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one of those, no one in those days anything of what they'd seen. All of a sudden, the encounter comes to an end. Jesus gave them a glimpse of his glory, what is to come after he suffers. He showed them the glory will follow his sacrifice, but now back to the mission he came on earth for. It was just a little quick preview. This is just a sample. This is what all reality is going to point to one day. Now back to my task. And that, that really is the reality for the Christian today. 
There's going to be days where you feel like it's just darker than dark, and yet God will break through and give you a little glimpse. This is what it's going to be like. This is what I'm doing, Sam. I, I, I don't waste any suffering. I got, I got this. But then by and large, we're going to just have days where it's just hard. They had to come down from the mountain so that shortly later, Jesus will have to climb another hill. A hill where he will not be transfigured, but disfigured. No beauty, but horror, utter horror, when the most innocent person who ever lived is executed like a criminal and shamed, stripped naked for the sake of the world. Now let's talk about the gospel. Let's go a little deeper. Every religion offers some sort of bridge between the divine and man. How can a sinful man be unified or at peace with a holy God? That is a paradox throughout the scriptures and a lot of the major faiths. We see this reality play with Moses. He was a great guy with God on the Mount Sinai. But even Moses, as great of a guy as, he couldn't see God exactly in all of his glory, right? God had to put him in the cleft of the rock and he had to see his back. Even though Moses was so great. What do we discover in this passage today? Peter, James, and John are able to behold the glory of Jesus face to face and not die. Jesus is that bridge that we've all been looking for. He is the one that we've always needed. He's the God-man that gives us access to forgiveness in God's presence forever. I got a long quote from Tim Keller. It's worth quoting him because this is so helpful. This is telling us Christianity is different than any other religion on the face of the earth. Because everything all the other religions say you must do to bridge the gap, this tells us Jesus has done for us. The disciples didn't bring a sacrifice, but they lived. Why? Because Jesus was the sacrifice. The disciples weren't perfect, but they lived. Why? Because Jesus was perfect. They didn't have transformation of consciousness because Jesus lived life on the highest plane. The transfiguration tells us that Jesus Christ, unlike any other religion, the founder of our religion does for us all of the things every other religion says you have to do to bridge the gap. So when you believe in God through Jesus, when you approach God through Jesus, when you take hold and rest and trust in not your record, not your transformation of consciousness, not your sacrifices, but his, the Holy Spirit, the glory of God can come into your life. Jesus is the bridge that's available for anyone here to cross. Kids here, anyone here who you, you, have not, you do not have the confidence that you have peace with God. Jesus is that bridge you're looking for. You are not the bridge. Jesus is the bridge. Come talk with us. Jesus is the one you can have access to see the Father face to face, to be with him forever. We'd love to tell you what that looks like. Now let's, let me bring it home for us, church. Oh, to be Peter and James that day. The, aren't, aren't you just green with jealousy when you think about it? To be there that day, to see Elijah and Moses, but more importantly, to see the glorified son in his glory. And as I thought about that, I was struck with the reality that I will see him one day like that. I will. Look at verse, look at 1 John 3, 2 on the screen. Behold, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Why? Because we shall see him as he is. Look at Philippians 3, 20 through 21. 
But our citizenship, citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject, subject all things to himself. So get this, one day, Christian, we will see Jesus in all of his glory, and when we see him, we will be like he is. We will have transformed bodies like him. That is, talk about another scandal in the Bible. Like his glorious body. That's what the text says. I'm not making this up. I'm not trying to hype up a text and make it something it's not. It says that we're going to be like his glorious body. Isn't that crazy? One day, there will be no aches and pains. There will be no warts or skin issues or whatever you got going on. You'll have a body like he is, but more importantly, you will see him as he is. This leads us back to last week's passage. For us to sustain a lifestyle of cross-bearing and self-denial, we have to daily behold this glorious Christ. Just like sacrifice is daily, beholding must be daily as well. Let me say that again. Just like sacrifice must be daily, beholding him must be daily. The Christian life is a fight for sight. We got to behold him in our hearts every day or we will wither away. Again, like I said, you will then fall back into legalism or being bitter at God if you try to live the sacrificial life of denial. So how do you behold his glory daily practically? First, you need intentionality. If you're taking notes, first you need intentionality. You will not behold his glory by accident. You don't just fall into it and stumble into it by osmosis. See, you know who's intentional about what you see? Satan and his demons. And so they're doing everything they can to get your sights on other things but Christ. If you are not intentional about your spiritual sight, there will other be, be other people who are serious about it. You gotta hear that. If you're not serious about what you are seeing spiritually daily, there will be other beings, very powerful beings, who will do that work for you. Because they want everything, because they know that the sight of Christ is this, the key to everything. So they're going to do whatever they can do to distract you from seeing him. Second, excuse me. Second, you need rhythms. You need intentional rhythms that get you in front of seeing him. Rhythms that you fight for in the beginning, but eventually they're like clockwork. Like, I don't have to wake up and be like, I guess I'm going to brush my teeth today. Some of you single guys still do that, but you don't think you, it's just part in, of your life. And the more you brush, you get the results of brushing. In the same way, you built in the habit of seeing Christ daily. The first thing you wake up, not your text message, not Facebook, not the news app. First thing is you see him. No Bible, no breakfast. And as you build that in habit in, you go up and you don't have to wake up and say, should I read my word today? No, no, no. You just have that as a rhythm of your life and your community. And when you wake up, you start beholding him in here. We're going to talk about that more lately, and there's more to talk about building in rhythms, but let me talk about three places to behold him. Behold him in his word. Behold him in his people and behold him in creation. When I say behold him in his word, I'm not merely saying check off your Bible reading list. I'm saying reading the Bible with an eye to look for Jesus and what he is like. That's why one of the number one questions we always talk about in our Bible reading is, what does this tell me about God? So an eye to see him, 
and let your heart marvel at the goodness of Jesus. Second, behold him in his people. Behold the glory of God working and transforming his people, working through people with miraculous deeds of good works and kindness and transformation and killing a sin. As you see God transform lives and you're around the people of God, especially people who are godly or more like Christ than you, you're going to see the glory of God in them. And then thirdly, you'll see the glory of Christ in creation. There's more to be said on that. Joe Rigney came up with a book recently called Strangely Bright. Just throwing that out. Second week recommending a book, but I need to stop doing that. Let me end with this. Church, Jesus will win. Jesus will make all things new. Jesus will glorify us. But in the glory of the future can sustain us in the present. But you have to have an eye set for the future. If we want any chance to make it and to live faithfully, we can't forget what is to come. We gotta live one day at a time, but you gotta kind of live cross-eyed or tilted-eyed. One eye toward the present, one eye to the future. That all loss will turn to gain one day. Church, glory is coming. Glory will follow your sacrifice. I know we're suffering in different ways, some more than others, but glory is to come, church. Glory will follow your loss. Glory will follow the pain and the sorrow. Glory will come. It will come. Church, hear me as if God is speaking to your very soul. Glory will come. It may come not in the timing we'd like, but the glory will come. And here's a beautiful thing. No matter how much we like his timing on this earth or not, when eternity comes, it will be like there was no pain. Let me share this quote and end this sermon with C.S. Lewis in the book, The Great Divorce. What he's teaching us is that heaven will work backwards to take every brokenness, we'll see, into glory. Son, he said, ye cannot in your present state understand eternity. That is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that glory, that agony, into a glory. Heaven will work backwards. I know it sounds far-fetched. I'm going to ask Joanna to come up to lead us. Church, set your gaze on the glory and the beauty of Christ and let that propel you daily in all the sacrifices he calls us to. Let me pray. Jesus, this is a glorious text. And I pray that you would take these words and make them sight in our hearts. No matter how much I yell, no matter how much passion comes from my heart, only your spirit can bring forth this spiritual sight. Lord, let the vision of the glory of Jesus be greater than all the sacrifices that we are feeling. All the suffering that feels like it's all that we can think about. Thank you, Lord, that glory is to come and that you don't, don't waste a single suffering, that, that with you, beauty comes from ashes. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.